0: Hey Rachel, didn't Strong Guy used to be Lila Shaney's bodyguard?
1: Yeah Miles, back before he was Strong Guy. In fact, he makes his first appearance not too far out from where we are now in New Mutants number 29.
0: And then he joined X-Factor, right?
1: Right, and he was going to be Sheriff of Mutant Town before Arcade destroyed it, and then he traveled with Lila some more, and then he went back to X-Factor, which by that point was X-Factor Investigations.
0: Wait, wait, wait. I-, I thought he died back in Madripoor, back when he was with the government X-Factor team.
1: No, he had a massive heart attack, though, and he spent a lot of the following few years in suspended animation. He didn't actually die until a few years back, when he got shot through the heart while guarding J. John Jameson for X-Factor Investigations.
0: Oh, man, what a way to go.
1: Go? Well, Layla Miller brought him back like an issue later.
0: Oh, okay. So he's still around.
1: Not exactly. How so? Well, first of all, Layla's power comes with a catch. When she brings people back, they no longer have souls.
0: Oh, that doesn't sound good.
1: You know, it's actually not as big a deal as you'd think, but with Strong Guy, it's largely immaterial at this point because to save Monet, he killed Wolfsbane's kid.
0: Wait, wait, wait. Wolfsbane has a kid?
1: Well, not since Guido killed him. But yeah, she had a kid with an Asgardian wolf god.
0: And Strong Guy killed this kid why?
1: To become king of hell. What?! Rachel Edidin.
0: And I'm Miles Stokes.
1: And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because
0: it's about time someone did.
1: Welcome to the 36th episode of Rachel and Miles explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera.
0: This time, we're finally going to jump into a couple of annuals from 1984, one of which is one of our favorite stories from this era, and one of which is just a lot of fun.
1: Annuals... Are sometimes aptly named. I feel like we should talk a little bit about this because we haven't really looked at any annuals previously. We've looked at giant size issues. I think we've looked at at least one special. We've looked at a Marvel graphic novel, but not, I think, an annual proper.
0: Yeah, so annuals are one of those things that seem like they should be very straightforward, right? Like you have a big issue that comes out for every title once a year. That would be simple. Often that is the case, and in fact, in this era, in the sort of early to mid-80s, Marvel was doing that for a lot of their books. Uh, New Mutants and Uncanny X-Men both were doing that pretty religiously, except for 1985 when New Mutants decided to have their annual be called a special edition for some reason. Okay, You know, I mean, that's the thing. They can be kind of inconsistent. They used to be king-size annuals back uh, toward the end of the Silver Age, early Bronze Age. What's also really not so consistent about them is their content. A lot of people sort of dismiss annuals because they're often seen as these sort of irrelevant stories.
1: Are you kidding? That's exactly what I like about them. I mean, they're basically standalone novellas.
0: Sometimes. Sometimes they're going to be just a story where something happens that doesn't really impact continuity very hard and is just fun or interesting.
1: Like where Lila Cheney steals the Earth?
0: Well, sort of like that because that one does impact continuity. But I'm talking about, so I don't know, like Uncanny X-Men Annual Number 7, The X-Men Fight the Impossible Man. It's fun, but it's something that's not really referenced again, maybe at the time when the New Mutants do.
1: Has there actually ever been an Impossible Man story that significantly influenced continuity?
0: I mean, I feel like if we were Fantastic Four fans, we would know that answer better, but for X-Men, not particularly.
1: He's like your friend's toddler who they drop off for the afternoon and it's awful, but nothing catastrophic
0: happens. At least nothing long-term catastrophic. Sometimes they are stories that follow up on previous stories. So, for instance, in Uncanny X-Men Annual Number 6, the one before that, it's a follow-up to the Dracula story from that one kevitch issue way back when. Oh, God. Occasionally, though, there is important stuff introduced. So, for instance, uh, a man Sefton Nightcrawler's on again off again girlfriend and And or sister and or sister and Margali Sardos Nightcrawler's maybe sort of kind of mother they first appear in Uncanny X-Men annual number four
1: adoptive mother right
0: it's it's nightcrawler's backstory it's very confusing
1: yeah it's one of those rare instances where it actually sounds worse than it is
0: in new mutants annual number one we first meet a character named lila shaney who this episode may or may not be partially dedicated to is
1: totally dedicated to because lila Chaney is the best she is and then sometimes you actually see annuals cross over right like between series so for example right now the uncanny x-men annual and the all-new x-men annual are are a two-part story
0: Yeah, and that was actually a much bigger thing in the late 80s and early 90s. You'd have storylines like Atlantis Attacks or Shattershot or The High Evolutionary War, where all the annuals that were coming out that summer, because annuals used to be pretty specifically in the summer, they'd each be a chapter of a larger story that sort of impacted the entire Marvel Universe.
1: I feel weird that we're mentioning Shattershot without making fun of it.
0: Let's just take the mockery of Shattershot as read. And I say this as a big Longshot fan. Oh, for sure. But at this point, annuals were, in fact, nice and simple. They were just big issues that came out once a year for most books with stories that usually, you know, you you could skip them and still read the main book that they were spinning out of. But you might get a little something extra if you read them.
1: So let's start with the first of the two annuals we're going to look at today. That is New Mutants Annual Number 1. It is titled Steal This Planet, A Rock Fable. And if you are not incredibly excited about it just based on that title, then you might be listening to the wrong
0: podcast. Or based on the incredibly gorgeous Bill Sienkiewicz cover. Oh
1: my god, can we talk about this cover and how it's perfect and how I want a wall of our home to be just a mural of it?
0: I feel pretty okay with that as the person who lives with you, so therefore we are now unanimous. It shall be so.
1: Yeah, Sienkiewicz has done a bunch of rock posters and a bunch of movie cover design, and this is one of those places where it it does that best. Just go to the As Mentioned and look at it, and look at it for a long time, lovingly, and in detail.
0: Set it as your wallpaper forever on all of your electronic devices.
1: You really should. It will make all of them at least 100% more awesome. Miles is an IT guy. I think he can actually validate that.
0: That's just science right there. That's just computer science. <laughs> so anyway, let's give it a little bit of context. So this uh, came out, like you said, in November 84.
1: This is immediately after New Mutants number 21, which we covered in episode 32, along with the Demon Bear saga. Danielle Moonstar is recovering from really severe injuries. Doug Ramsey, Cypher, and Warlock, Are now members of New Mutants.
0: Yeah, so New Mutants is currently a team of eight characters, and it still baffles me that Chris Claremont's able to juggle that many characters effectively without having any of them feel like they're really fading into the background. We have Cannonball, Sunspot, Wolfsbane, and Mirage from the original lineup of the team.
1: Cannonball is Sam Guthrie, Wolfsbane, Rain Sinclair, Mirage. Is she going by Mirage at this point, or is she still Psyche?
0: I don't know. She changes codenames every ten it's minutes. Danielle but... Moonstar
1: and Sunspot is Roberto da Costa,
0: and then we have Magma, Amara Aquila, who joined the team a little bit after the series started. Iliana Rasputin, Magic, who is very complicated, and we love a great deal.
1: She is Colossus's little sister
0: and a demon sorceress, and it's very complicated and
1: a teleporter through yes. time and space. Uh huh.
0: And then, uh, like you said, Rachel, we also have Cipher, who's Doug Ramsey, and Warlock, who's Warlock because that's his only name. The creative team—they're a creative team we've seen before, right?
1: They're actually the original New Mutants creative team, Chris Claremont and Bob McLeod. While Sienkiewicz kind of erased the earlier New Mutants artists from a lot of memories, McLeod is really solid, and he is, story-wise and tone-wise, generally a really good fit for this book and team.
0: Yeah, he's more of a traditional kind of superhero artist, and while New Mutants, you know, has certainly been seen as the really weird book, it definitely has a place for that kind of a feel, I think.
1: The, The thing we do see with regards to Sienkiewicz's influence continuing through here is the weird, cool cosmic stuff.
0: Well, and also just Warlock's appearance in general.
1: Other artists have drawn him, but I'm really genuinely unsure as to whether anyone else could have designed that character. And I think it's worth touching on something that has significantly changed, and that is Xavier's attitude towards the New Mutants. When the team first formed, well, actually, when the f- team first formed, Xavier was possessed by a brute embryo. So that's not entirely relevant, but early in the team's tenure, when Xavier was no longer possessed... A really, really important point that he kept coming back to was that the New Mutants were not a superhero team and they were not being developed as a superhero team.
0: Yeah, I remember at one point when Wolverine's away from the team for one of the various times he is, Storm's like, hey, we're on this mission. We need a tracker. Can we use Rain Sinclair? Can we use Wolfsbane?
1: And Xavier is like, hell no. They are students. They are not superheroes. We're not training them to be superheroes. That's gone out the window pretty quickly. This issue opens with the Danger Room sequence, and it's very obvious, I think, in that Danger Room sequence from from the way Xavier talks about the training and from the kind of training they're doing, that he's effectively grooming them to take over for the X-Men someday.
0: He's basically saying, you know, you guys aren't the X-Men, but you might be called on to do the kind of stuff they do. You need to learn how to do this stuff. I kind of get it, though. Because New Mutants is a monthly comic book and you have to have exciting stuff happen, the new mutants, like, they can't take two steps without having some kind of a demon or alien or supervillain show up. It just keeps happening. So in a world where that's the case, I kind of can get behind Xavier saying, all right, well, since we can't have a freaking normal day ever, let's at least make sure you guys know how to punch aliens. You know,
1: I feel like there would be an ethical way to do that that didn't involve training them to be a superhero team because that's got very different implications. You are clearly in bed with a lot of weird and it's going to be following you. Let's train you to deal with that when it happens not let's train you to be superheroes.
0: It is kind of a fine line with a team as strange as the New Mutants can be.
1: I feel like if you are operating from the position of authority that Xavier is, that's a line you should be able to walk.
0: Uh, or roll, as the case or may roll. be. Anyway, what happens from here?
1: Roberta DaCosta has scored tickets to see Lila Cheney in concert.
0: And this is one of the things that I love it when comics do, when they're like, oh, I'm so excited Lila Chaney. Everyone's like, yay, Lila Cheney!" The reader's like, I don't know who that is, but you guys are excited, so I guess I should be excited.
1: So here's what I wonder, and I'm, I'm hoping we can get some responses from people who were reading New Mutants as it was coming out. New Mutants was the title that was actually plugged into contemporary pop culture much more so than X-Men. I'm wondering how many readers read this and assumed Lila Cheney was maybe a real person at first.
0: That's actually a really good question, yeah. I mean, I knew about her from, from later X-Men before I actually read this stuff, so I already knew, but yeah, I I can see if you're just uh, picking up this issue off the newsstands the week it comes out being like, oh, man, I haven't heard of her. I should grab one of her records. Well,
1: and the other pertinent thing about her in that context, while they don't appear in this issue, her usual backup band is a real band, Cats laughing. They are a folk rock group that mostly doesn't exist anymore. They were fantastic. You can find a lot of their music online. And actually, there's a Kickstarter going on right now to put together a reunion show at Minicon 2015. We will link to that in the as mentioned.
0: Can we expect alien attacks or mass teleportation?
1: Um, I would, I would expect so.
0: Okay, well, I'm there then. Can
1: I briefly be obnoxious and say the other great thing about Cats Laughing being a real band is that I can six degrees of separation myself to Lila Cheney via them?
0: <laughs> How? How do you manage that? Okay, there
1: are actually two different ways. What? Professionally, it's actually a little bit shorter because I used to edit Jane Yolen, who's the mother of Adam Stemple, who uh, is a member of Cats Laughing, which is the backup band for Lila Cheney.
0: Okay, and the other way?
1: Personally, it's weirder. When my parents are in college, they did that roommate swap thing where each of them had a nominal roommate of their own sex and they switched so they could live together. Oh, like we did. Yeah. Right. And my dad's roommate was an, a man named Will Shetterly, who is a science fiction author and is married to Emma Bull, who's the lead singer of Cats Laughing, which is the backup band for Lila Cheney.
0: The only comparable story I have is that my stepfather used to be the college roommate of Chevy Chase and apparently said that um, if Chevy Chase was drunk, he was really nice. And if he was sober, he was kind of a jerk. So he would always want him to be drunk when he came back to the room. But anyway, Chevy Chase very much aside, we were talking about New Mutants.
1: We were. So Bobby is a huge Lila Cheney fan.
0: Okay, is it Chaney or Shaney? Because I think we're each saying it differently. I assume Chaney. Okay, let's go with that. I'm going to um, retrain myself.
1: And because Bobby is Bobby, he knows the tour promoter. You know, he's got connections all over the place. His dad's a billionaire and he's got backstage passes and these VIP tickets And he is completely starstruck. And one of my favorite things about Bobby, I've mentioned this before, he is all in for anything. He is so enthusiastic and so dedicated, and he is just over the moon to be backstage at a Lila Cheney show.
0: And that's one of the things I like most about Bobby, actually. That kind of just, like, genuine excitement. I mean, yeah, he's kind of full of himself, but he's kind of full of everything. So, you know, it works out.
1: Alas, Lila Cheney's heart will soon belong to another new mutant.
0: That's true.
1: That is one of the, the new mutants who rescues her from... Sudden death when her speaker array starts to crash down on the stage during rehearsal, and that is Cannonball Sam Guthrie.
0: Yeah, I mean, a lot of the new mutants are working together to save her from this, but he's the one that kind of rockets her out of the way, cutting off his powers right before he becomes visible, of course. And
1: he's the one who gets the kiss. Warlock is also involved and sort of transforms himself into a a stand for the speakers. And this is also, I think, the first issue where we see Warlock's human disguise. His person suit. God, that sounds so much creepier.
0: Why are you wearing that stupid man suit? Nope. Aw.
1: God, if there is a New Mutants character who is the opposite of Frank in every important way, it is Warlock.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, um, uh, apparently the chain that was holding the speaker tower together has not just been cut, but has been disintegrated.
1: OMG. They discover a guy in the rafters who is green and furry and basically looks like a green bipedal luck dragon from The Never Ending Story.
0: But also talks kind of like Yoda with the inverted syntax.
1: This gentleman is a Vrakanean warrior. This is a race of Marvel aliens who, as far as I know, has only ever appeared in, in this one annual. That's really all there is to know about them. They're green. They fight. They kind of look like luck dragons. Talk like Yoda. They're jerks. And this one in particular is out to assassinate Lila Cheney for reasons that are not yet clear and will not immediately be resolved because Lila notices the fight and teleports away via a mad guitar solo. Oh,
0: oh, oh, but before she does that, she blows up his weapons and armor via a different mad guitar solo. Lila Cheney, coolest
1: person in the Marvel
0: Universe. Guys, she just beat up an alien through the power of rock. That's definitely on my bucket list right after turning into a rocket-powered centaur. So we're going we're to be kind of like fanning out over Lila Chaney this entire episode. Oh
1: yeah, we're right there with Roberto.
0: Yeah, we, we would apologize, but no, no apology is warranted. No,
1: we are absolutely right. Lila Cheney is objectively the best ever. <laughs> yes. And so she teleports away with her band and with Sam, leaving the new mutants on the stage and in serious trouble because whatever has teleported her away has released a huge amount of energy, which Warlock, in an attempt to protect the crowd has absorbed, and he's about to explode.
0: Which is actually kind of vaguely reminiscent of, uh, in the last episode, Dazzler absorbing all the energy, for the sound energy from the jet engine, and having to blow up with, like, light energy.
1: Except good. And they figure, well, what can they do? They can release the energy, but it'll trigger the Stargate again. And they figure, well, you know, that's okay. We'll just teleport to wherever she and Sam went. But no, Lila Cheney is smart and she knows there are people after her trying to kill her. So the Stargate is basically rigged to teleport whoever tries to go through it next and follow her out into space.
0: Into the vacuum of space.
1: Fortunately, they have Warlock with them, and Warlock just turns into the Nostromo from Alien, so they're good.
0: Yeah, I love this part. Danny wakes up first, and she's in this sort of cryogenic life pod chamber thing, and it's the same kind of life pods radiating out from a central axis that you see in the Nostromo, and I don't know, I never get sick of Alien references.
1: I assume that a lot of the things that Warlock turns into are cultural references reflecting the bits of earth culture that he's seen
0: Mm -hmm. he's like well if you're in space why wouldn't you be the nostromo what else would you be after this we see what happened to sam and lila sam wakes up and he's in a strange strange place
1: which sam recognizes being a claremont character as a dyson sphere
0: well, to be fair, we do have the precedent of Sam being a huge science fiction fan. This has come up a number of times before.
1: This is, I think, specifically a Larry Niven riff, or, or he recognizes it via familiarity with Larry Niven. And there, there's a great, as you know, Bob conversation about <laughs> about Ringworld and about Dyson Spheres. This is where Lila Cheney lives when she is not on Earth.
0: Man, if I was ever going to get a second place, I-, I would love a Dyson Sphere across the galaxy.
1: I think the where she lives when she's not on Earth point is perhaps worth exploring slightly further. Because Lila Cheney lives in space. She and her band hang out in this big, enormous, abandoned Dyson Sphere that she's taken over from some alien culture. And what we learn after she dresses Sam up as a kind of fantastic 80s punk...
0: Oh, man, he looks so awkward. That's actually one of the reasons that I'm really happy Bob McCloud is back and the artist. Yeah. Because he's got this kind of a wholesome, very normal look that he gives the characters. And so Sam just looks so out of place. I love
1: the way he draws Sam in particular and Sam's body language and facial expressions. Not a lot of people draw teenage body language and draw a range of teenage body language as well as Bob McCloud. And meanwhile, she is talking to another Verkanian. These are, again, the, the Green Luck Dragon guys about selling the planet Earth.
0: I mean, damn, how do you follow up a kick-ass world tour of rock and roll music? You sell the freaking planet.
1: Well, you steal the planet and then auction it.
0: So, Lila Shaney, she's usually considered to be a superhero, an ally of the X-Men, I gotta say, coming off a little bit like a supervillain here. Yeah,
1: no, this is a really straightforward plan. She is going to steal the entire planet Earth and its population and sell the planet to the highest bidder. This is supervillain on so many levels. The ethical implications alone are enough, but it also involves like massive super science that she doesn't quite entirely understand that she basically salvaged from a dead alien culture in whose old home she's squatting. I mean, Lila Cheney is, by all rights, narratively... Should be a supervillain, and she's totally not. She's an anti-hero.
0: Although now I'm getting kind of paranoid. Like, what other rock stars might have plots to enslave the entire population of Earth?
1: Most of them, I assume. Probably. Taylor Swift is pretty much there already.
0: I knew Lars Ulrich was a jerk.
1: Being a jerk and being able to pull off a heist on the scale are two entirely different things. Lars Ulrich could maybe steal, like, a mid-sized city. (laughs)
0: Lars Ulrich has stolen Delaware! Oh no!
1: So do you think the Vercanian Empire really wants Delaware? Hi. Do you think they care?
0: We stole... Delaware. <laughs> yeah, anyway.
1: Speaking of rock stars who are jerks, as it turns out... Lila's lead guitarist is going behind her back dealing with the Vercanians. It's obvious that he is trying to sell Earth out from under her. Her plan, you see, is to auction it, and the Vercanians want to buy it outright, and he is conspiring with them.
0: And I kind of love this guy because he's just just really doofy looking. He's like generic, aging, background, unnoticed rock star with generic mullet and generic-type clothing. No,
1: he's evil Keith Richards in a bad wig. And the New Mutants eventually make their way to the Dyson Sphere— and are absolutely fascinated by it. Doug Ramsey immediately finds, you know, ruins covered with with writing none of them can decipher, which means he actually gets to use his powers. Remember when Doug Ramsey got to use his powers in plot relevant ways that weren't like
0: fights? I do. I, I miss that. It's like in uh, if you're playing a, a video game role-playing game and you have characters that have the abilities they can use outside of combat, and it's always a nice fun break from just sort of walking around and hoping you don't get in a random encounter.
1: Yeah, or when you actually pay attention to character development and you don't just min-max for combat in a game and then your GM actually makes social stats relevant exactly thanks Claremont my notes just here say remember when writers like Doug remember when comics were good (laughs) (laughs) I do really like how much the new mutants are about exploration
0: and I mean that's actually something that's really cool here they're exploring this weird civilization because like you said Lila found the Dyson sphere somebody else built it nobody knows who and so for me this is kind of classic New Mutants. This is them exploring these strange strange worlds, not really knowing what to do, having to like make it up as they go along. That's one of the reasons I think I include New Mutants Annual number no. 1 very much as part of the New Mutants series even though it kind of stands alone, cuz it just it continues the feel of the title at this point so so perfectly. But yeah, so they're all exploring around when all of a sudden there are lots of Wakanians on sky sleds and they attack and there's a big fight. And they're captured except for Bobby who goes crashing
1: off on a sky sled. They're dragged to where Lila and Sam are already prisoners and the other new mutants are freaking out because they're prisoners and can't get free and Lila's freaking out because her lead guitarist has double-crossed her and Sam is freaking out because he knows his friends are never going to stop teasing him about his outfit.
0: (laughs) (laughs) He's such a delightful dork and I love him. He
1: is such a teenager. How old is he at this point? If he's under 18, then Lila gets a lot more supervillain points here.
0: Because they are definitely having sex in this issue. I mean, it's off-panel, but it's very clear.
1: Yeah. And they do, in fact, never stop giving him hell about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah? it becomes a running joke. And in general, like Lila dressing Sam up whenever they meet up becomes a running joke.
0: Yeah, at one point Sam's thinking, Lord, open a pit and swallow me whole. Bad enough I gotta look like this, but to have my friends see me.
1: Oh, Sam, you're precious.
0: <laughs> so as any good villain will do, we have Charasula, who's like a Vercanian leader uh, kind of luck dragon.
1: And who straight up kills evil Keith Richards.
0: Right. He's like, haha, you thought I would hold up her end of the bargain? Incinerated. And then proceeds like any good villain to say, by the way, here's my evil plan since we've captured you and there's no way you'll ever get away. To be fair,
1: 90% of this is Lila's evil plan. It's just that this guy's going to do it now. She set up this web of stargates across Earth. This is how she was able to get away from the concert. And when she activates the whole thing, it'll teleport and stun the entire planet Earth.
0: My favorite part of this plan is that includes, okay, and while planet Earth is stunned, we're going to put these slave collars on everybody on Earth. How do you do that? Do you have like like billions of interns and they all know exactly what area they're going to go to? Like, this Yeah, is, that sounds about right. Well, this is by far the most complex part of the plan. Teleporting the planet Earth by comparison makes a lot more sense to me. Vrakanian intern. That's like apparently the second most common profession in the Marvel Universe. That's on like everybody in the world's resume. The
1: Vrakanian interns hang out with Harvey and Janet sometimes.
0: They just have a big convention. It's in like, I don't know, Des Moines or something.
1: <laughs> yeah, this is becoming a larger and larger group.
0: <laughs> it is. It's true. They're, they're
1: going to have to change from bridge to poker or something.
0: <laughs> so there's a big fight because Magma and Sunspot both burst in having evaded capture before. Ilyana shoots a, a random Ricanian, and Doug's kind of freaking out, like, What am I doing here? I don't have any fancy powers like the others. I don't even know how to fight the way they do. I could get killed! But Ilyana is herself thinking, Doug looks so pale. He's terrified, but he isn't running. He's doing his best to help. He has more courage than he knows.
1: And you know, the really sad part is that they are both right. That's hella foreshadowing. This we, is-
0: we will certainly see some courage-inspired tragedy quite a while. Yeah, in, in a few
1: dozen issues, uh, Doug Ramsey is definitely going to get straight-up killed dead saving someone's life in a fight.
0: Yeah, yeah, well, it's okay. He'll be back. It's comics. Uh, They also don't miss this opportunity to uh, make fun of Sam. Ilyana's like, you are Sam Guthrie, aren't you? Cute, Ilyana. I think you are. Very. Yum.
1: I really love how just, like, wicked and saucy Ilyana has gotten.
0: I also just love the Claremontian yum. I don't think anybody in real life actually talks like that, but in X-Men they do all the freaking time.
1: I love that the New Mutants' default mode of interaction with each other is slightly adversarial flirting.
0: Unfortunately, what's gone on is that Amara, as she burst in with her lava powers, has managed to somehow trigger the Stargate's self-destruct circuits. Oops! And since the Stargate's already set up on Earth, that'll disintegrate the entire planet.
1: Wah, wah. I feel like this is a
0: slight design flaw in the Stargate.
1: Well, to be fair, if everything had gone right, if the Verkanians hadn't screwed everything up,
0: I would have gotten away with it too. If it weren't for you kids and your black and yellow. But you know, we were talking about. Remember when writers used to be able to use Doug's powers?
1: Doug has been gradually making headway deciphering this alien language, and he deciphers it well enough to be able to read the label on the big switch that's, you know, pull here to keep from exploding everything.
0: Do not blow up Earth. Click.
1: Oh, I, I assume it's some kind of emergency abort, because if you've got a system that can trigger that easily, that will destroy an entire planet, you really want to have a well-labeled off switch. That's fairly important.
0: I feel like a lot of the, uh, the commenters out there would, would do well. It's the well-actually switch.
1: Oh, nice. I like that.
0: (laughs) So, yeah, with that, they all head back to Earth. Lila teleports them to London. We should point out, by the way, I don't know if we did before, Lila's a mutant. She can teleport intergalactic distances, but not short space. Well,
1: we learned that for the first time actually here because they assume they're trapped in space. And she's like... Nah, I can get you home. And because Lila thinks of distance in terms of intergalactic space, home is the UK. And she's like, yeah, this is basically New York, right?
0: Well, to be fair, she can also only teleport to places that she's sort of marked as home. For yeah, herself. but I think
1: she does specifically describe it as close enough.
0: <laughs> yep. Yeah, in the meantime, the New Mutants are figuring out how to get home, and Sam is off talking to her.
1: He asks why she stole and sold the Earth, which, to be fair, I feel like that's kind of the ultimate because you can.
0: And she just replies, seemed only fair. Earth sold me
1: and refuses to clarify what she means and as far as I know that's something that has actually never been revealed
0: yeah uh, neither I nor dr internet knows the answer to that one I think that's just maybe a mystery since 1984.
1: I think the most we've ever seen of her pre-rock star life is actually in the recent Captain Marvel issue that she appears in
0: uh yeah I think you're right as she's talking about when her power manifested
1: yeah it remains a mystery and Sam is reluctant to believe that intergalactic rock star and super thief and general badass Lila Cheney Yeah, General Badass would be a great title.
0: Um, (laughs) Oh, no, it's General Badass and his (laughs) badass forces. What are they like?
1: Polite. (laughs) (laughs) So he's shocked that awesome rock star Lila Cheney is interested with him because she has her pick of guys. Roberto is also... Absolutely shocked. And because he's Roberto, he dials it up to 11.
0: Oh, yeah. He's like sitting here just railing against how terrible everything is. And I love the other characters' responses. Like, Danny is just, suffer, shorty. You, my supposed friends, turn on me too? By all the saints in heaven, by all the sinners in hell, truly, there ain't no justice. I love Roberto Costa. Yeah, because he's always so overdramatic, but he's also very self-aware about how overdramatic he is without being any less overdramatic. So what you're saying is he's kind of you. Uh, there are perhaps some overlaps. If only I could do that sunspot form, I would have way more employment that opportunities. That would kind of
1: explain why I find him so charming.
0: <laughs> well, there you go. We should also point out that Mirage did say, all right, so you just did this terrible thing, Lila. And she's like, yeah, you saved my life. What can I do for you? And Mirage basically says, "Just, just stay away from Earth, okay?" Just, she says, "Done."
1: So presumably, she's going to go off and maybe steal other occupied planets.
0: Well, I mean, she she did have a special resentment for Earth, so I don't know.
1: Well, the supervillain thing is never really going to come into play the ethics of her other career choice is something that's going to be a consistent source of tension between her and Sam.
0: Right, yeah. She shows up in New Mutants later when actually to to meet his family, to meet the Guthries, and he's freaking out because he thinks the gift that she got his mom is something she stole. It's this, it's this big character conflict.
1: The two of them and the extent to which their relationship is colliding worlds is going to remain a source of tension and of drama, but also of some of the sweetest moments of the comic. Speaking of sweet moments in comics, I feel like that's actually a pretty good segue to the second annual we're going to be talking about.
0: Right, so this is Uncanny X-Men Annual Number Eight, which also came out in 1984. Uh, specifically right after the last issue of Uncanny we covered right after the X-Men fight Magus and Kitty and Wolverine get back from Japan. We didn't do this deliberately by the way to have these annuals appear exactly where we left off in each title. That's just sort of a happy accident. Yeah we
1: just really wanted to talk about ridiculous space adventure
0: one-shot stories. Yeah this is more of an example of a story that's really not going to be part of larger continuity as much. New- the New Mutants annual introduces Lila. This does cover some character beats that will kind of continue to play out in X-Men but for the most part you could skip this and not really feel like you're missing anything. That being said, I think it's a really enjoyable issue.
1: It's lovely, and in ways that very directly call back to Kitty's fairy tale.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is basically Ilyana's fairy tale. The title is actually The Adventures of Lockheed the Space Dragon and His Pet Girl Kitty!
1: This starts with the X-Men and the New Mutants all gathered around a campfire for what appears to be a night of marshmallows and allegorical fiction.
0: Yeah, yeah, they're all telling stories, but the one it opens with is uh, Wolverine telling the story about this female samurai and the lord of the universe and her refusing to compromise who she is, uh, even though she would get immense power. And it's very clear what's going on yeah, here. Yeah, he's,
1: he's recapping the Kitty Pride and
0: Wolverine miniseries. Yeah, he's basically saying, you did the right thing, kid. I know you're really conflicted over the way things went down, but you absolutely did the right thing.
1: We should talk, I think, a little bit about the state of the X-Men at this point. They are in a state of a lot of tension and flux.
0: Yeah, so Storm is still kind of reeling over the seemingly permanent loss of her powers.
1: Right. She's tried to leave the team. She's tried to travel off and got sidetracked by the Kulan Goth mess. And so she's she's back with the team now, but doesn't really feel like she has a place there. Kitty just got back from Japan from the Kitty, Pride and Wolverine miniseries, which, if you recall, got jumpstarted when she went off to Brood after Colossus dumped her for a dead space babe who he met during a toy commercial. Everyone else is having kind of a rough time. Cyclops, who's been leading the team, has left. With him gone and storm depowered, there's kind of a leadership vacuum that Nightcrawler is trying but not quite succeeding, stepping into, and everyone else is just endemically miserable.
0: It's been a rough time for our ex-people, I mean, as it often is. So it's really nice seeing them just sort of hanging out and relaxing and just being nice to each other. Like, we see Amanda Sefton, Nightcrawler's sister slash girlfriend. Stepsister. Going to Comfort Colossus, knowing he's really down. We see Stevie Hunter kind of taking care of the other characters. So it's really like just kind of an X-Men family gathering, both people who are on these superhero teams and people who aren't.
1: I do really love the idea that when they're having a really rough time, they just build a campfire and sit there and tell really, really thinly veiled allegories about each other. <laughs> like I feel like that would turn really passive-aggressive really fast, though. Well,
0: we do see another one of those, which is the bulk of the content of this issue, as Ilyana's like, all right, I know everyone wants to go to bed. I have one more story. Kitty, I owe you this one for last time.
1: The last time that Ilyana's referring to is X-Men 153, Kitty's Fairytale Theater. That story takes place a couple of years ago in comics time for Ilyana... It took place seven years ago.
0: Right, because she spent all that time growing up in limbo while no time passed in the real world. This was
1: Kitty telling her a bedtime story that turned out to be basically the Dark Phoenix saga with a happy ending. The other X-Men ended up gathered around the door listening. And it's a lovely story. It's a really sweet story. And I think it's actually the first explicit reference that we've seen Liana as an older teenager make to her time with the X-Men before she got sucked into limbo.
0: Because it makes sense. She would have these very fond memories of Kitty, this much older girl who sort of was there for her and very kind to her and took care of her and who is now her best friend who's very much a peer.
1: While Kitty's story was a fairy tale... Ilyana's is a space opera.
0: Yes, it is. I do miss this Ilyana because the current Ilyana Rasputin in X Men, like as of, you know, 2014, is a very dark, very serious, at times wry, but still not fun character.
1: And to be fair, she's not exactly the same Ilyana. She's a parallel Ilyana, a very close parallel. But I think at the same time, especially more recently, once Kitty joined up with Cyclops' is X-Men, you see a little more of that Ilyana coming through.
0: True. But yeah, right here we see the character who's very much the 1984 Ilyana, who does have a sense of humor that I think the word wicked is overused to describe sense of humor, but is very appropriate to hers, but also has a really kind heart and a really adept ability to manage social situation, manage people's feelings in a sort of proactive and kind way. Yeah,
1: benevolently
0: manipulative. Yeah, I'll buy that. So, yeah, let's just jump right into it.
1: The adventures of Lockheed the Space Dragon and his pet girl, Kitty.
0: So, the story opens up in the Starliner Chicago, and we see young Kitty Pride, who is the daughter of the ship's captain, who is very clearly Carmen Pride. He's got that weird facial hair. And the ship is under attack by the White Queen and the Black King.
1: Who are clearly space pirate versions of Emma Frost and Sebastian Shaw, the White Queen and Black King of the Hellfire Club.
0: And the Queen says that she wants Kitty's powers, and she takes her hand and turns her arm to this sort of crystalline ice stuff.
1: Which kind of makes you think this is going to be a Snow Queen riff, and it's not.
0: No. And so Kitty phases through the deck to escape, and it is then rescued by space versions of Wolverine and Nightcrawler, who attack the bad guys, the sort of aliens who are working for the White Queen, as does a giant shadowy Lockheed. Well, really it's just a shadow we it's just a shadows giant
1: and kitty is running and running and running and the queen through the crystal in kitty's arm finds her has her parents turns them to ice and shatters them and straight up murders kitty's parents
0: this is one of those like old school grim style fairy tales i guess well, it's a
1: space opera think about how star wars begins
0: with a really slow crawl of a ship and a bunch of words on the screen
1: well i was thinking a little later with the charred corpses of uh, luke skywalker's only surviving family
0: oh man so carmen and what's-her-face pride are, are now uncle owen and aunt beru
1: for purposes of this story, yeah. And, you know, you noted when we were discussing this that Ilyana is pulling out a couple of villains who are, are very actively in the X-Men and New Mutants consciousness at
0: this point. The Hellfire Club is pretty legit terrifying. You know, they're responsible for the Dark Phoenix saga. They did some really terrible stuff as far as kidnapping the New Mutants recently. And Kitty really, really personally hates Emma Frost.
1: And that's why I think Emma Frost is the obvious villain for Ilyana's story. I also think that Ilyana's sense of scale and what it's appropriate to throw into something like this might be profoundly skewed, but I can see her reasoning. The White Queen is, to what extent she has one, Kitty's nemesis at this point. She's someone who has consistently blocked, kidnapped, and otherwise gone after Kitty nonstop. And Kitty's first encounter with the X-Men involved Emma Frost kidnapping and torturing them. She is, as far as monsters in the closet go, she's the obvious choice for Shadowcat at this point in time. I also want to point out Kitty's fairy tale doesn't exactly pull punches in that regard either. While it doesn't go for a major villain, what it basically does is tell a happy ending version of the story of the death of someone who everyone in the mansion is incredibly close to.
0: And I think it does manage to bring that in the direction of closure rather than putting salt in the wound. But it's kind of a fine line to tread and one that I think Ilyana does so very carefully this time, and it could have gone terrible, could have just left with everyone leaving the campfire. Man, now we feel super shitty about everything. You're a jerk, Ilyana. But no, she does it well, possibly because it's such an exciting and silly story.
1: Now, the captain of the pirates, the other pirates, the good pirates, the X-Men pirates.
0: This is full of space pirates.
1: It is full of space pirates. Actually, I kind of want to talk about that. The X-Men pirates don't really do pirate stuff. Like, well, they basically just fight bad pirates. And mm-hmm. I I was thinking, you know, what space stuff have they had contact with? Well, the Shi'ar Empire and the Starjammers.
0: Okay, so if you're not a big Imperial person, then you're clearly a pirate. Those right, are your two those options. are the two categories. Okay, so everyone here is a pirate.
1: Exactly. The <laughs> X-Men are basically pirates already, because, you know, they fight the good fight and they're not affiliated with an enormous empire.
0: Yeah, so the captain of these good guy pirates is, in fact, Lockheed. Not a Lockheed who talks or a Lockheed who's human-shaped. No, just Lockheed. Yeah. <laughs> which I love. And so, yes, they take Kitty in, try to convince her that no, it's not her fault. And can we just talk about Nightcrawler's space pirate outfit?
1: Nightcrawler's aerobics pirate outfit?
0: Seriously, mean? he's wearing like wristbands and short shorts and irregular stripes and a headband. and
1: He is absolutely ready to commandeer a jazzercise class.
0: Yes, and do it with style and panache.
1: Which is weird because he's the most traditionally swashbucklery
0: of the bunch. And we do, in fact, see him a little bit later looking that way more. But for now, he's just...
1: All jazzercise? all the time.
0: And so yes, they take Kitty in and we see the sort of montage of her over the next few weeks learning to be a space pirate.
1: And getting new costumes.
0: So you know how that goes. Take a drink.
1: A space drink.
0: (laughs) Yes. And so they do this for a while and she becomes a lot more confident and vows to chase down the White Queen to get revenge.
1: But her revenge is waylaid by an invitation from Charles Xavier, Senor of the Spiral Arm, who invites them to his jubilee. Not uppercase jubilation jubilee, but jubilee-like. Like a fancy party. A fancy party. Which speaks to Ilyana and Kitty's friendship. That Iliana knows that the way to give Kitty a good fairy tale is basically to say, and then Kitty got access to the ship's fabricator and spent an entire row of panels trying on different outfits.
0: Take three drinks. Space drinks. These costumes, I'd like to point out, are actually designed by Trina Robbins, who I believe we briefly referenced last episode about the art she did for Barbie.
1: Yeah, she is. But she started out involved in underground comics, and she was one of the main people behind the Women's Comics magazine. So she finally settles on an outfit, which is none of the ones she tries on. It's a different one. So I, I guess you're up to five drinks and maybe you should switch to club soda a few drinks ago.
0: <laughs> Perhaps.
1: So on this fancy planet at this fancy party, she meets a fancy gentleman.
0: And that's Peter Rasputin, who is the premier of Charles Xavier's Round Table.
1: I mentioned earlier the idea of Warlock getting his idea of views of a lot of contemporary culture and stories and how things work from pop culture, watching TV with the New Mutants. And I feel like that's probably very much the case with Iliana as well, because cuz again she basically grew up in a hell dimension. So a fun game in this particular annual is basically spot the pop culture references and mashups cuz there are a lot of them.
0: So from here a couple of things happen. Lockheed goes off for reasons unknown and Wolverine follows him.
1: Nightcrawler dances with all the ladies. I mean all of them.
0: Yes, there's a great montage of that. And that's where Kitty is as well, sort of at the party.
1: Not dancing with all the ladies, because Kitty's dancing with ladies is still completely subtextual.
0: (laughs) Right. So Wolverine follows Lockheed, right, and sees a bunch of other dragons, and doesn't have time to sort of process this before the White Queen shows up, hits Wolverine with her Frigibeam, Frigibeam,
1: Yours for only three payments of $9.99.
0: And Lockheed apparently dies while this is all going on.
1: Does he die or is he teleported away?
0: Well, he in fact is teleported away, but it looks to Wolverine like he dies, and that's what Kitty sees as well. So she, at that point, swears more vengeance and vows to track down the White Queen even more.
1: Kitty sees this because a hologram of the White Queen shows up at the party with what appears to be Lockheed encased in ice, and then shatters it.
0: So at this point, it is on. She's like, all right, I've been waiting around for too long. It's time to have this revenge before anybody else dies. More
1: revenge, extra revenge.
0: And Peter's like, hey, I-, I can come with you. I can help. And she's like, yes, you're hot. You should totally do that. So they go to Mos Eisley. They pretty much go to Mos Eisley from Star Wars. Like, it's this sort of really shady alien bar. But that's not the best part. Because as one does in Mos Eisley, they're looking for the best pilot around.
1: And that's Han Solo, by which we mean Storm.
0: Dr- Drunk, surly storm. And it is beautiful. The art just captures it perfectly.
1: Can we take a moment? I'm having feelings.
0: That's entirely reasonable. We find out that this version of Storm, she doesn't fly anymore. She lost her ability. And it's not exactly explained what that is, although it's implied she had sort of a supernatural ability to fly a starship really, really well. Yeah,
1: some kind of deep inherent connection to the cosmos and to her ship. Oh, and the pirate's ship is Ilyana. She is basically Synergy from Gem and the Holograms. I kind of want to talk about that for a sec. All of the other X-Men are actors or characters in this grand drama, and Ilyana is the vehicle for it, which is a pretty good description of her relationship to the story, but I think it's also kind of reflective of how she sees her relationship to the other characters at this
0: point. That yeah, she's, sort of helpful, but a little set apart from them. Yeah,
1: that she's a means to an end for them, but she's not exactly one of them.
0: So Kitty gives this big pep talk to Storm, and Storm's like, all right, fine, I'll come with you. They realize that there's a black hole in between where the White Queen went and where they are.
1: With sufficient pep talks about, you know, being damaged and believing in yourself, uh, Storm is finally convinced to go through this. And they learn on the other side of it, after ending up in a really cool, weird, psychedelic space, that Lockheed is not only alive— but has spent the last period of time getting hell
0: laid. They find him, they trace his energy signature once they realize that he's alive and he's in this sort of pleasure palace with a ton of other dragons who they realize all of whom are female.
1: Who had requested that Lockheed return with them and help them repopulate their planet, it, which he happily did.
0: In fact, it was them who teleported him away, not the White Queen. She really didn't kill him. Yeah, she
1: just faked that to, I guess, get Kitty vengefuler. I don't know. That is a very White Queen move, so.
0: So Nightcrawler telling Storm, all is well, Aurora. Lockheed is indeed alive and unharmed, albeit perhaps a trifle worn out
1: on account of all the sex, you see.
0: Dragon sex, guys. There's like an entire corner of the internet dedicated to exactly this. They should read the story.
1: And remember, this is just the story Eliana is telling to all of her friends around the campfire.
0: Hello, friends and family. I would like to tell you about (laughs) Dragon Bonin. Let (laughs) me go into explicit detail. Well, I
1: don't know what kind of stories you tell at family camp outs, Miles. I
0: know what kind of stories I'm going to tell going forward.
1: So anyway, Dragon Bonin aside, you would think this would be a happy ending.
0: (laughs) 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 well uh after the happy endings (laughs) what happens is
1: the white queen attacks and blows up their ship an ancient dragon of this culture attacks and is killed but buys lockheed and kitty the time to get up to the white queen's ship
0: there's another big fight and the white queen tries to do a mind swap with kitty when it becomes clear that kitty is winning just like happened in that issue of x-men a while back with the white queen and storm
1: Kitty resists and tells her specifically, thanks to all you've done, I'm your equal and more.
0: I mean, I think this is Ilyana doing a big parallel to the Ogun thing. Like, yes, you've been horribly damaged by this thing you went through, but you're a stronger person for it.
1: Also, you're totally a demon ninja now.
0: She's just a ninja.
1: She's a mutant ninja.
0: And so... (gasps) A mutant ninja. A teenage mutant ninja. (laughs) So we're we're just missing one here. We're just missing one thing.
1: They fight and the queen blasts Kitty, but Lockheed takes the hit for her and apparently dies. And so this victory has come at tremendous cost. The ship, you know, Ilyana is dead. Lockheed is dead.
0: Storm presumably is dead, having been on the ship. A lot of dead people. But it's
1: okay, because it turns out they're all just fine.
0: Right, they're all just fine. Kitty cries, and her tears revive Lockheed, who maybe was just unconscious, we don't know.
1: And it turns out Eliana and Aurora were just
0: okay. At this point, Kitty basically tells Peter, Hey, so I'm sorry, I thought I loved you, but I don't. My true love is actually Lockheed. Wait, what? Let's just sit with that for a moment. Okay, I've sat with that enough. And so it ends up with a happy ending. Colossus is like, well, okay, I get it, no worries. And so we cut back to Around the Fire, this story having been told, and very clearly at this point to the reader and to some of the characters having been told for a few specific purposes.
1: Right. Storm decides that maybe the time has come to really start adventuring and being a person and trying to find herself again, even without her powers. Which is weird because she was actually going to do that when she got pulled into the Kulan Gath thing.
0: Well, she got sidetracked. She's sort of reaffirming that she needs to do that, that she needs to find herself again.
1: And Kitty and Peter finally get closure.
0: Yeah, she says, it wasn't intentional. Sometimes things happen. If anyone's to blame, it's that dumb beyonder. But it's still like us to be friends. And they do. They, they agree to be friends. And in fact, from here on out, things work out pretty well, except in the occasional times when they don't.
1: Yeah, like when he tries to beat her new boyfriend to death in Excalibur. That's not so cool.
0: These things happen.
1: What Colossus has noticed, what they've both picked up on, is that basically Ileana has retold the story of, of the love triangle the two of them were involved in. Except in this version, Space Colossus played Earth Kitty. Space Kitty played Earth Colossus, and Space Lockheed played Zaji.
0: Which is kind of confusing, but everyone seems to get it. So, yeah, after this we just have a nice little coda with Kitty scritching Lockheed and picturing him as a cute space boy and him picturing her as a presumably cute space dragon.
1: Okay.
0: So that's very Tina Belcher, huh?
1: It is. In fact, I would say that it is not inaccurate to describe Aliana's whole story as erotic friend fiction. (laughs) in space
0: erotic friend fiction in space on that note we have some questions so quintessential defenestration asks on tumblr i picked up marvel unlimited mostly to keep up with the podcast but i'm almost through the paltry offering of new mutants that they have is there a good way to get the complete claremont run i don't think there's an omnibus
1: there is you can get it collected in trade paperbacks there are seven trade paperbacks seven volumes of new mutants classic that cover the entire claremont run After you get out of that, it has not all been collected, unfortunately. And so you are, once again, high and dry and back in issues. But at least for the length of Claremont, you can find them in trade paperback. Look for New Mutants Classic. We are, by the way, close to the end of Volume 3.
0: Okay, what else do we have?
1: Well, uh, GPAC3 asks on Tumblr, What's the deal with Psylocke's powers? Telepathy? Telekinesis? Both? In the current adjectiveless X-Men, she manifests weapons besides the psychic dagger, maces, bows and arrows, crossbows, etc., Are those manifestations the focused totality of her psychic powers, too? Or are they her telekinesis manifesting as a physical weapon doing physical damage? Also, how did she get telekinesis?
0: So this is—oh, boy.
1: Actually, this is something I've been wondering about, too, Miles, so I I hope that you've got an answer for this one.
0: Let me try to condense it down as much as I can. So a while back, Betsy had to stop using her telepathy because she had imprisoned the Shadow King in this sort of psychic prison, and if she used it again, he could maybe get out— In May of 2000, there was this event called Revolution, which inspired the Counter-X storylines that Warren Ellis did.
1: So this is as distinct from Axis Revolutions.
0: Uh, Yes, entirely distinct. Okay. during this, in the X universe, time jumped forward six months. So all of a sudden, all the stuff was different, and we didn't really know how a lot of it had happened. But apparently, one of the things that did happen is that Jean had tried to help Betsy with this dilemma with her powers. And due to an accident, as they were trying to make this work... Jean ended up with all the telepathy, and Betsy ended up with all the telekinesis. How does
1: that even work?
0: It was never adequately explained, because the X-Men movies were out around that time, and they had already made it very clear that Jean had both powers. Was
1: Sage involved in this?
0: Um, I'm assuming Sage was probably involved
1: in this. God damn it.
0: (laughs) So, for a while, that was the status quo. Later on, they kind of fixed that, and they redistributed things, but at this point, while Jean had her previous state of having both telepathy and telekinesis, Betsy now not only had telepathy, but also had some telekinesis of her own at this point her powers were permanent and so what we what we see is that she creates these psychic weapons like the ones that the the person who asked the question was was describing And those can actually be sort of on a spectrum from purely telepathic to purely telekinetic. So sometimes Betsy will have like a telepathic katana or a psychic katana, I should say, that just does like what her psychic knife used to do, sort of a telepathic disruption effect.
1: This is specifically doing psychic damage um, for those of you keeping track of, you know, soak numbers.
0: Right. You know, or or if you want to go D&D as opposed to, say, Sonic or, you know, Fire or whatever. But however, she can also, with some other weapons, or even with that katana, she can make them more telekinetic and have them be able to do physical damage to physical reality. So basically, she's telepathic and she's telekinetic, and her psychic weapons can be either or both.
1: This kind of reminds me of that butter safe strip about the cat that is a metaphor that is also a real cat.
0: Uh, Yes, exactly. Elizabeth Braddock is a ninja who is a metaphor who is also a real ninja.
1: And on that note, Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and produced by Bobby Roberts, who is also the producer of the Geek Remixed trilogy of pop culture mashup albums and co-host of the Star Wars podcast Full of Sith.
0: New episodes of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, and at our website, rachelandmiles.com. Check
1: out rachelandmiles.com during the week as well for all kinds of extra content, visual companions to every episode, essays, fan art, and much, much more.
0: This podcast is completely listener supported and is made possible by our Patreon supporters. You guys are super rad if you'd like to become a supporter, if you're not already, please check out the link at the top of our website.
1: Now, next week, we are going to be going into an annual of different sort. That is going to be the first Rachel and Miles giant size special.
0: This is something that was actually a reward that our Patreon supporters unlocked.
1: So this is all your fault. We are going to be changing up the format a little bit uh, with some interviews, a lot of conversation, a lot of questions, and looking at one of our very favorite X-Men stories, the Marvel graphic novel God Loves Man Kills.
0: See you then.